Colossians chapter 2, our reading this morning will be verses 8 through 10. And I guess I've come to the realization that I have to read this and say it's a reading because we're only going to look at verse 8 today. And that we're only going to look at part of verse 8 today. So, you know, you get what you get. So, <laughs> But uh, up to this point now, we want to just bring you back to where we've been here in the book of Colossians. A little bit of review, of course. Uh, this particular church in Colossae was, uh, was being attacked, attacked by heresies, in particular what was called the Gnostic heresy. A heresy that uh, hasn't stopped trying to get into the church for all of these years. Uh, we have many forms of, of Gnosticism in churches today. And we're going to talk a lot more about that as we uh, get along. Now, the Apostle Paul at the time was in prison in Rome and uh, had a, a visit with the pastor of the church in Colossae, whose name is Epaphras. And Epaphras made clear to Paul what they were dealing with. And Paul was not fooled in any way. And he writes this letter to send to not only the church in Colossae, but also to a church nearby named Laodicea. And uh, they were to look at this letter carefully. And one thing that we know that Paul did from the very beginning of the letter, from the first word to the last, he kept his focus upon Jesus Christ. In fact, the very bulk of the letter has to do with Jesus being supreme. It is the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ, and the preeminence of Christ in all things. And by the way, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So with that in mind, we get to now the very section that is going to target the Gnostic heresy. And Paul says in verse 8 of Colossians 2, Beware lest any man spoil you, <coughs> excuse me, through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, Jesus Christ, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, it can be said that from the onset of this Pauline letter, the apostle's purpose and his goal was to deal strongly against this Gnostic heresy that was imperiling the young and vibrant church uh, that we've mentioned, the church in Colossae. And from the very greeting and introduction through the very powerful and specific points outlined in the main body of the letter where we are now, to the life <coughs> applications affected by the struggle with the deceptive philosophies and concluding with personal greetings and warnings, Paul makes it quite clear that what is central and key to their victories over the present heretical teachings was and is the supremacy and superiority of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So there's no question that the Church of Jesus Christ is being attacked with more sophisticated forms of Gnosticism than ever before. 
But the solution remains the same. The solution remains the same, knowing Jesus Christ. Let's begin there. You need to know Jesus. Not just know about him, you need to know him. So it's knowing Jesus Christ. It's knowing Jesus Christ in his supremacy. It's knowing Jesus Christ in his preeminence over all things. It's knowing Jesus Christ in him crucified and resurrected. It is knowing and living the word of God, as we'll see as we get to chapter three. It's knowing and living the word of God. It is giving testimony of his truth in and through our lives and knowing that we can be perfected, complete, and fulfilled only in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You said, you, you, mentioned, you might say, you, you mentioned Jesus Christ a lot. Not enough yet. I think that's the way Paul lived his life. That's the way we need to live our lives. What else is there in this life but Jesus Christ for us? Paul in this passage of scripture is now aiming his, aiming his heavy scriptural artillery on this Gnostic cult. But before we discover his clear exposure of the cult, it would help to take a, a general look at what I call the elitist nonsense that the Gnostic cult was putting forward as an improvement on and an upgrading of Christianity. Now, let, let me clarify some things. The Gnostic cult from the very beginning was coming into the church to do that. It was putting these philosophies forward as an improvement on the church or an improvement on Christianity. It was putting forward these heresies as an upgrading of Christianity. Now I'm gonna upgrade that very same thought in saying that the Gnostic cults of today are not coming just to bring improvement and upgrading of Christianity, it is to come and replace Christianity. It, has come, it is now to come and reject Christianity. And the message of the gospel and the message of Christ and the message of the cross, that is what the Gnostic heresy is doing in churches today. And we need to take a stand against it. And in the remaining verses of chapter two, Paul begins to unravel at least five major errors of Gnosticism that were being propagated at the time. The first one, and we're gonna deal a little bit with that today and next time as well, but the first one was intellectualism, intellectualism. And by the way, we're gonna define all of these terms as we get to them. And I'm saying that, let me, let me interject here. I'm saying that because sometimes we come to church and we say, well, there's too much stuff that we're getting. No, you, better, you need to pay attention. There are too many people asleep in the church today. It's time to wake up. So there's intellectualism, which we'll deal with in our text today, verses eight through 10, and a little bit next time. And then the next thing that Paul is gonna deal with is something called ritualism. Ritualism. Not just, and I'm gonna tie this together with some things that I've already said before. But ritualism is verses 11 through 13. That's followed up with legalism. Paul is gonna deal now with legalism in verses 14 through 17. That involves not only legalism of the Gnostic cults dealing with Eastern mysticism and Greek philosophy, but also Jewish legalism itself. 
That's part of it, but not all of it. And then the apostle will deal with mysticism in verses 18 and 19. And then lastly, something called asceticism, and I'll deal with that when we get there, verses 20 through 23. So the, the, all the way down to the end of, of the chapter. So these are the issues that bring together the more general designations that we gave to Gnosticism in our earlier studies, which is the marriage of Greek philosophy, Jewish legalism, and Eastern mysticism. So it is important then to know that the Gnostic heresy was, for all intents and purposes, in its beginning, or if you will, its foundational stages. It was in, in its foundational stages during the time of the Apostle Paul. It didn't, it didn't come to full fruition until the second century when it was being professed in every part of the civilized world. Gnosticism would eventually have numerous and zealously attended academies throughout Greece and Asia. And the results and the effects of Gnosticism over the years, if we can put it in a nutshell, are these. And I want you to listen carefully because it's affecting us today this way. First of all, historically, historically, it would apply, in other words, Gnosticism would apply non-Christian thought into the Christian faith. This was one of its tactics. And let's just go ahead and say it now. It was the devil's tactics. It was Satan's tactics. To apply non-Christian thought into the Christian faith. Philosophically, now that was historically. Philosophically, it wedged sin. In other words, it lodged sin. It, it found a place to put sin into matter. Matter like us and those chairs and everything that's material. Remember, this is philosophically. It, 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 uh, it wets sin and matter and hence what they were doing by, by doing that, making anything that was matter evil, it renounced and rejected the creator then as either being impotent or evil. Now, when you think about that, Think about one thing that you read in the book of Genesis at the creation of all things. Everything that was created and every day that creation took place, God said that it was good. And it wasn't until the fall of man because of the sin that Satan brought into the garden that everything began to collapse and falter. But Gnosticism says, well, God created these things and therefore he created them with inherent evil, which of course is a lie, which goes back to Genesis chapter three and Satan's lie to discredit God. Now that's okay, historically and philosophically. Now let's look at practically what Gnosticism does or did and does. But Gnosticism and various forms of Gnosticism and we'll be more specific about it next time. But Gnosticism, generally speaking, prohibited marriage for much of the very same reason, that there was inherent evil in all matter. 
prohibited marriage for much of the same reason while also prohibiting the eating of certain foods as being inherently evil. So this is the reason why we'll read what Paul is saying about the things that you eat, you know, and, and marriage and all of that. So historically, philosophically, practically, but now it is in the theological realm. Now in the theological realm that the enemy would train or aim its most deceptive and seductive philosophical weapons. First of all, that the God of the Hebrew scriptures was portrayed only by them as a tribal God of Israel. Not the God of creation, not the God of all things, not the God who created everything by the word of his power, but just the God, the tribal God of Israel, just like the other tribes had gods themselves. Hence, he was denounced then by the Gnostics as an alien and hostile deity, an alien and hostile deity like any other God. But there's something to that that has affected us all down through the generations. And that is the effects of what we have seen now in anti-Semitism today. The hatred of God, the God of Israel, and the hatred of Israel as well. And it comes from the root of this particular Gnostic philosophy. But most significantly, that was one thing, but most significantly is the fact that Gnosticism separated Jesus from the Christ. It separated Jesus from the Christ, denying both the deity and the humanity of the Lord. Now I'm going to talk about those two camps next time, but I just want to mention that that's what Gnosticism did and does. It divides Jesus from the Christ. They will say, for example, well, when Jesus came, he was born of a woman, of course, and so he was human. But after that birth, at, at, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. That's when he became the Christ. And then, of course, when he died on the cross and gave up the spirit, then he was no longer the Christ. That's the thinking of the Gnostics. But it is the biggest lie that there is concerning Jesus. Why? Because he was prophesied as the Mashiach of Israel. He was prophesied to be Messiah because he was and will always be the Messiah of Israel. So you can't separate it from him. So it, it is in all of these points that, that it fell into, you know, that Gnosticism fell into this irreparable apostasy. It, it can't repair itself. It continues on in the apostasy. I mean, it just keeps rolling away from the truth. And it's not an apostasy that is merely a corruption of the truth. Please, please understand this. It's not an apostasy that is merely a corruption of the truth, but an apostasy that is a total change of the truth and complete abandonment of the faith previously held. And I'm going to say it. It is a fundamental change. Ever heard those words before? 
We are going to see a fundamental change in the United States of America. Where are we today? On the downslide. Look at the political climate of our country today because of some fundamental change. I didn't want to get into politics. Sorry about that. But that's what happens with Gnosticism. It's a total change of the truth. It's a total change of the truth. And we'll expand even more on these points later. But for now, let's, let's just look at what the Apostle Paul was instructing the church concerning their present enemy. Verse 8 of Colossians 2. Beware, he said, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So with all that has been said so far, it would be easy <laughs> to think that the Word of God would actually condemn the acquiring of knowledge. It doesn't. That is certainly not the case. God does not condemn the acquiring of knowledge. Knowledge is necessary. That's why we go to school. That's why we're taught from our earliest ages and stages of how we are to live in our own homes and in our communities and in our families and, and, and in the society in which we live. The acquiring of knowledge is not the problem. Scripture would remind us that it is the wisdom of this world, and I emphasize wisdom, Sophia, and not Gnosis, knowledge, that is the problem. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that wisdom, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So if you read what it says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 20, the apostle Paul says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. And then he says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Those that consider themselves wise in the world consider themselves wiser than God. This is what we see today in our world. This is why there's such a rejection of God in the world. Or if they're going to accept some form of, of godliness or some form of Christianity or some form of religion, it's got to be with, with, with a God that is impotent itself, himself. So philosophy then, in a very general sense, is worldly wisdom. Philosophia, by the way, is the word that's used here in the Greek. And by the way, philosophy or philosophia literally means the love of wisdom. The love of wisdom. From the general sense of the philosophy of the world, the, it is the effort of the human mind to solve the mystery of the universe or to solve the mysteries of the universe. But remember this, philosophy isn't an exact science. Philosophy is not an exact science. Philosophers have never been able to come up with any satisfactory conclusion about the why of things, much less the wherefore of things. I, I took a philosophy class in, in college and 
I thought I was going to go in that direction. I want to kind of be wise, you know. And uh, so I took this philosophy class, and, you know, the stories were told, of course, you go through all of the various levels of philosophy in, in, in all of time, uh, you know, especially Greek philosophy and, and a few other different uh, cultures and, and whatnot. But then at the very end, you know, we were told this story about a, a philosophy class where they did all of that same thing, but at the very end of the class, they, the professor uh, said, okay, we're going we're gonna to have a three-hour uh, uh, final exam, and I'm uh, and and, I, and here's here's what you have to write on. So he went up to the board and and he wrote on the board the question why. One word why. Question mark. And he said you got three hours. All of a sudden everybody's writing. Yes, I mean just writing and papers are flying everywhere, you know. Except for one guy in the very back. He's in there. He looks down at his paper and he writes his answer. One piece of paper, two words. And just sat there and waited. At the end of three hours, everybody got these stacks of papers. They take to the professor and they lay them down. And he goes and he puts his on top. His answer got him an A, the only A in the class. You know what the answer was? Why not? I'd like to say that was me, but it wasn't. Why not? An exact science? Not at all. People are still asking the question, why? It's amazing that even Christians will ask that question sometimes. When we see things happening to our fellow believers or to the church. Why, Lord? Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 1.22 that the Greeks seek after wisdom. And boy, did they. They, they became the leaders in philosophical theorizing. And time doesn't permit looking comparatively at philosophers like Plato and Socrates. But I will say this. I will say that Plato himself yearned for a divine word. In fact, he called it the Logos. He yearned for a divine word that would come with authority and make everything plain. That was his desire. Well, about 400 years later, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came and did just that. And John records it for us. The very first words of John chapter 1, the gospel, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was God, or was with God, and the Logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made in him. The Logos was life, and the life was the light of men. And if you jump down to verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, And the Logos, the Word, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We saw him. 
We beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what this tells us is that the Logos is no longer hidden. Whatever it was that Plato was yearning for, to have answers, had already come and has come. And we don't need to search for it. We find it in Jesus Christ. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Romans in Romans 10, verses 8 through 13. He says, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee. In other words, the word is near you. The word is near you, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith. Now, I know that there's a lot of definitions to that phrase, the word of faith, right? So listen to what Paul says. Don't listen to what man says. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says that is the word of faith which we preach. So what were they preaching? Look at verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Sounds like the gospel to me. That's the word of faith. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. No difference between the Jew and the Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why I say the Logos is no longer hidden. Now you don't have to search, you just have to call. And you'll come. Have you called upon the Lord? Have you truly called upon him? I can tell you this, when you call upon the Lord, he answers. He answers. He's real. He's alive. His name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. Amen. So Paul's warning to the Colossian church was simple, yet it was profound. He says, beware of worldly philosophy. The Greek word for beware is the word blepete, or it comes from blepo or blepos, meaning to take heed, to look out, watch out and guard yourself. A lot of times we don't add that last phrase, but that's a very important one about looking out. We look out, we, we, we take heed, we watch out and guard ourselves. And there was a good reason to do that. Because he said, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. And I know I've mentioned this before, but the word spoil there does not mean, you know, to like, like we use the term nowadays that some people spoil their kids, you know, give them everything that they want, whatever. We call it, you know, in the Spanish or Hispanic culture, you know, making them cheapless, you know. That's not what this word is. So please understand that. We're not talking about spoiling in that particular sense. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy. The Greek word for spoil is really a phrase. Two Greek words, estai sulagogon, which means, listen carefully, it means to lead into captivity 
and straight into slavery. And even more than lead into, even more graphically, it is carrying a person off as a captive, carrying them off as a captive into slavery. In other words, it's kidnapping. Kidnapping. It was actually a phrase used in classical Greek as carrying off a man's daughter. That's kidnapping. Why do I say that? Well, because you see, false teachers didn't then and don't now go out and win the lost. They don't win the lost. No more than cultists do today. No, they kidnap converts. And you know where most converts are kidnapped from? Churches. Especially churches where the word of God is not preached. Especially in churches where the word of God is secondary to other things. Secondary or worse. I mean, that is what we call the menace of false teaching. That is the menace of false teaching. Those who persuade people to abandon truth for error are seducers and they're robbers. They're stealing you blind. And so Paul alerted the Colossians. They were to recognize that far from their gaining anything by following these cultists, they would be tragic losers. They were being carried off into another level of slavery. They would be giving up the truth as it is in Christ Jesus the Lord for a pack of lies. Esau traded his birthright for what? What did Esau trade his birthright for? Hebrews 12 verses 15 through 17 gives us an indication of that. I start in verse 15 for context's sake. It says, looking diligently, diligently, lest any man failed of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. He gave up the blessing of inheritance for a morsel of meat. Think of people like Ahithophel who traded David for Absalom, who traded honor for treason and betrayal, and all for the sake of revenge. It was all about revenge, and he gave it up. Think of people like Achan in the book of Joshua, Judas Iscariot. We know what he gave up for 30 pieces of silver. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. 
And then think of one Demas. Demas. By the way, he's mentioned in the book of Colossians. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 14. Interesting that at the end of this letter, Paul is giving greetings and all from people who have been there to visit with him. And notice what it says here in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Someone who was working alongside of Luke, obviously, and more than likely knew Paul well. But we find out later that Demas traded in something. What would Demas trade in? The last letter of Paul that he ever wrote, the second letter to Timothy, in chapter 4, as he's closing out this letter, before he goes to the, to the blade of his executioner and enters into glory himself, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Paul was now alone. He said, For Demas or Demas hath forsaken me. He traded in Paul. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He traded in Paul for the world. He traded in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the world. And has departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. But it's about Demas here. It appears that he traded in the mantle of an apostle and messenger of Jesus Christ for this present evil world. To trade truth for error is apostasy. To trade truth for error is apostasy. The highest and most expensive form of treachery. Now what follows then from the, from the menace of false teaching is the method of false teaching that Paul deals with. Verse 8 again, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. The key word used in this phrase is deceit. It is the word apatos. The word occurs 19 times in the New Testament and is always used, always used of Satan and his works. Vain deceit is empty, hollow deceit. Empty, hollow deception. And as I've mentioned already, human reasoning or philosophy, which by the way, as it, well, I've said it already, it means love of wisdom, philosophy, philosophia, from phileo and sophia. Human reasoning and philosophy has its limitations. This is the intellectualism that Paul was combating. He was combating this intellectualism 
The, the philosophy of the false teachers was indeed empty or vain, and it was deceptive, and that for a few reasons. First of all, from the text, it is the tradition of men and not the truth of God's word. That's the rest of the verse. After the tradition of men and not after Christ. We'll get to the other phrases next time. But it is important to see that it is the tradition of men and not the truth of God's word that Paul is dealing with. Now the word tradition, a lot of people have a problem with this word. So understand it from the biblical perspective. The word tradition, which is the word paradosis in, in Greek, means that which is handed down. That which is handed down, just a simple definition. That which is handed down. And there certainly is a true Christian tradition that we need to be sure of. In fact, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be very sure of this tradition. First Corinthians 15 verse 3, where Paul says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. So notice that Paul received this tradition because it was handed down to him, in this case by Jesus Christ himself, really, when you know the history of Paul. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, Notice the phrase, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. And that he was seen of, of Kephas, which is Peter, and then of the 12. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, so now he's speaking of the, 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 the present day experiences of those who saw Jesus, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep, some have gone home to be with the Lord. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one of one born out of due time. But what he's saying is, this tradition sounds very much like the gospel of Jesus Christ was handed down to him, this is what he continues to hand down to everybody that he ministers to. If it has been handed down to us, what are we then supposed to hand out as tradition? The gospel. If anybody said gospel, you get an A and a gold star, and I'll put it right here. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now consider another use of the term tradition by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, where he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren... So now what he says is, all of this is the truth of the gospel affecting your life, your salvation, your sanctification, your obtaining of the glory of Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, he says, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught. What have they been taught? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Not rituals, not ceremonies. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
hold the traditions which you have been taught, and notice this, whether by word <clears throat> or our epistle. There's something that the Holy Spirit has shown Paul about the fact that every letter that is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have them in the New Testament today. From the gospel writers through Paul and Peter and John and Jude and James and so on. All of this would become inspired scripture, the word of God. This is a, prof this is a prophetic statement. Hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle, because it comes to you now as the word of God. And then the same letter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Another gospel. Another way of living outside of the gospel. And then even though the word tradition is not used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, notice the implied understanding of the gospel, of, of tradition here. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. What did he hear? The tradition of the gospel of Jesus Christ being handed down. So he says, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. Hand it down to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also and handing it down to faithful men, the tradition of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the reason why we are sitting here in this place today because it was handed down from then to now. And we have been saved by the very same gospel, the very same truth that will always be truth and can never be changed. We are saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? So what is important about any teaching is its origin. In other words, is it from God or is it from man? The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had their traditions and they were pretty zealous to protect them and obey them. And by the way, Paul, who at one time was named Saul of Tarsus, he had those traditions too. And he mentions those before meeting the Lord. Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul said, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation. Being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Ah, what should have been the traditions of his fathers? The word of God, the Tanakh, the Torah. What was his tradition? The tradition of the fathers, men. Jesus made it pretty clear to the religious leaders of his day that they were more stuck on their traditions than they were on the truth. Now, you can read that in Matthew 15 all the way down to verse 20, but I'm just going to read you the first nine verses. 
Matthew 15 verse 1 says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of, the, which were of Jerusalem, saying, why do, thy, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Ah, the tradition of the elders. Who are they? Well, they're men. For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and he said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother. And he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift, which is the word korban. It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. Translation. Well, this particular son is supposed to be taking care of his father and mother, honoring them in their old age and taking care of them. But he says to them, you know, I would, I would do that for you, but I, I've given my money as a gift to God. And Jesus said, oh no, you should honor your father and mother and care for them. Because Jesus says, and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Be free if you gave that to, to help your father and mother. You'd be in good stead with me. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. They did it to shirk their responsibility. That's what it ended up becoming. And folks, we need to be very careful in our day and time. Because a lot of people are doing the very same thing with their own, with their own families. Sometimes it, you, can't, you can't help, but you have to, you know, you, older, older people have to sometimes be put in nursing homes or whatever. I understand that. And if you're paying for that, that's good. But a lot of times that's done to put the responsibility away. Be careful about that. But notice what Paul calls them, the religious leaders, for doing that. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah, or, or Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh or near unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching, notice, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching for doctrines the traditions of men. So listen carefully. We're going to close here and come to the table of communion in just a moment. But if philosophy... If philosophy is the love of wisdom, and still man would love wisdom that is not of Christ, then they would be loving an empty idol. They would be loving an empty idol. For in Christ, as we're told back in verse 3 of Colossians chapter 2, is in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge.